Welcome to Ordinary Fellowship, a podcast inspired by the Puritan practice of godly conference, or spiritual conversations among believers. These spiritual conversations offer practical spiritual help for Christian living. I'm Jeremy Lee, and with me as always is Matthew McLaughlin. Hey, Jeremy. This is a podcast that you don't get much, if any, banter at all. (laughs) (laughs) We are a non-bantering podcast from now on. Yes. So, enough with the banter. It's time to move on. All right. Um, Be sure to like and rate our podcast on your favorite podcast service. Share it with family and friends or even your enemies if you have some. (laughs) Share our podcast with whoever. If you enjoy the episodes, I'm sure other people will as well. past couple weeks, we've been dealing with what Rebecca McLaughlin calls the secular creed. Uh, You've likely seen these signs in someone's yard. Probably seen signs that like like this as you drive through a, your community. Uh, where they say something to the effect, "In this house, we believe love is love, women's rights are human rights, so on and so forth." So we're examining one of those signs that Rebecca McLaughlin has in, explains in her book, and we're dealing with it phrase by phrase. So we've. Looked at Black Lives Matters, Love is Love, last yeah. week. And gay rights are civil yeah, rights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And today, we'll be looking at women's rights are human rights. Now, the thing about each of these statements is usually you've got to ask, why are they saying this? Because this is really a redundant expression, okay? Women are human beings. If women have rights, then obviously they're human rights, right? Correct. <laughs> So why are they saying this? Because it's a, it's a no-brainer. This isn't even up for a debate. Uh, if you know the definition of the terms women's rights and human rights, then it must be true. So nobody in their right mind would argue with this. Um, so part of the reason they, they say these statements like this is like when we talk about love is love is because they're really inarguable but they're actually loaded with beliefs that aren't right up front. So I think what's happening here, the reason why they're saying women's rights are human rights, the, I think the reason they're saying that is the is there's a narrative that's being pushed that our society has assumed patriarchy for so long and that men, under the assumption of patriarchy, men have oppressed women and in order... For, for women to protect themselves, they need to have rights in order to protect or, or get rid of this so supposed hierarchy of patriarchalism. Now, there's no doubt that men have abused women. Uh, n- no one is questioning that. That's not an argument we're having. The problem I have with the narrative is it's it's this narrative that's used time and time again by woke people that everything can be reduced to struggles of power. And so women's rights, we have to state women's rights are human rights because we're, women have been oppressed so long because of this power struggle that men have had control. We're rejecting that narrative. We're Not that it's completely false, but it's too simplistic. It's reductionistic. It doesn't answer all the complexities that are there involving why women have suffered and things like that. 
we think the statement is nonsensical because it's it comes from a point of view that we we don't accept. We don't accept that that is the narrative that that explains all the issues of women and why there have been struggles. Okay, it's not that we deny that women have been abused and hurt by men. Um, there's plenty of history of seeing that, uh, but it's just it's a simplistic narrative that we hear again and again in our culture. I mean, anytime wages are brought up, you hear of the mythical women's pay gap, right? And this is another sign of the patriarchy and the power and the men being in power. When there are disparities, the assumption is that it's either racism or sexism or homophobia or whatever like that. But that's, that's too simplistic and reductionistic to reduce it to struggles of power all the time. Uh, human beings more complicated than that. And so any solution that's so as simplistic as that, we reject out of hand. <laughs> so Right. I think that is, while that is true, I think, as you've already said, I think where we have to reiterate is that in rejecting it out of hand, because it is reductionistic, again, as Jeremy said twice, and I'm going to say it again a third time, that doesn't mean that there haven't been instances when men have abused their power over women, whether that whether that is through um, just straight abuse, whether that's through coercive methods, whether that's through any number of things. Those things are true, but that doesn't therefore negate the fact that the statement in and of itself is reductionistic because just everything Jeremy's already said. Right. And so we don't, what we're saying is we believe in women's rights. Right. But we believe in them because they're human beings. Correct. Not because men have oppressed women. Exactly. <laughs> Where there is abuse, we do believe that um, law enforcement ought to be involved uh, and and things ought to be done to correct those abuses. Um, so we're we're affirming all those things. We're just not affirming this this what I believe is a false narrative about why we need to talk about women's rights. Um, we need to talk about women's rights because women are human beings, and because this is the narrative that's being broadcast in our day. Enough of that. Unless you have anything else to say in particular about the well, statement. Well, I would just say that. I think the point you make is the valid one we have to remember. We we fight for women's rights because they're humans. And we understand that because we're human, because humans are sinners, sin causes us to mistreat both women and men are mistreated. And therefore, we have a responsibility to seek to, to fix, to remedy the effects of sin to them to the best of our ability and that's why we struggle for this not because it's some power structure that seeking to get yeah. grab we're, hold of we're not the patriarchy trying to retain our power correct <laughs> that's um that's not what we're doing anyways we believe the best foundation for women's rights is actually the bible and i know our world today would 
think the opposite, that religion, and Christianity especially, is is anti-woman. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that that we're not going to talk about. But what we want to show through looking at the Bible and some ideas uh, Rebecca McLaughlin shared, what we want to show is actually the Bible is the best foundation for women's rights that we have. So, let, without further ado, let's get started. Genesis one we we've quoted this or mentioned this before when we talked about Black Lives Matter. Uh, Genesis one twenty seven says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God's creating mankind, not man as one individual, but mankind as Adam and Eve, man and woman, they together, each of them, image God, is the point. So, as far as the image of God goes, according to this text and other passages of Scripture bear this out as well, men and women are ontologically equal. In other words, as human beings who have the image of God, because that's what distinguishes us from animals, as human beings... We are equal in bearing the image of God. We're equal in dignity and worth simply because of that. Even if we don't do anything, we're worthy. We're of worth and value, men and women both, and we're of equal worth and value. Now, Genesis 2, um, Genesis 1 is a more, uh, is an overview of creation. Genesis 2 digs in specifically to dealing with the creation of man. And so Genesis 2, 18, this is a lengthy passage, but I think it's worthwhile to read it all. Genesis 2, beginning at verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So there are several things that we see here. And one one is that mankind was the, the crown of God's creation. And God gave him a companion, someone, someone uniquely suited for him. So if man is the crowning creation, he's finding somebody uniquely suited for him, it's not going to be some subservient or lesser being. And Adam certainly doesn't see it that way when he sees Eve for the first time. A lot of times I hear 
feminists read this as if women, woman is a second thought. That God made man, and then he saw Adam was lonely, and so well, I guess I got to make some companion for him. That's first of all, that's a misunderstanding of who God is, because God doesn't have to wait around to see how we're going to feel before he makes decisions. God is all knowing. God, I let's not. I don't want to go down that path. Okay, let's just say that God knows what he's doing. We don't know exactly why God waited to make Eve. To, there's no reason in the text to assume that it, God, it was a second thought. In fact, this seem, this woman seems to be a wonderful gift to Adam, right? Right. <laughs> he celebrates her when he opens his eyes from being sleep, being asleep. He says this at last. He'd he'd examined all these other animals and named them as God had. Uh, called him to do, and he he didn't find a suitable helper for himself. But at last, God gave him one, someone that was suitable. And he says, she's bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That means she's related to me, not like a family member, but she's she's part of him. She's part of humanity. She's a human being like he is. That's what he's recognizing here. And he, he's celebrating this fact. And yet this is somehow turned into a narrative where God created woman as a, as a second, um, second thought that he didn't think of her in the first place. That's not at all the case. This is a gift that God has given to the pinnacle of his creation for his good. Um, so there's, there, I don't, I, for the life of me, I can't see anything degrading or terrible about this. Adam is thrilled with this blessing of God. And all of that to say, we want to affirm without qualification, without stuttering, that women and men are equal in dignity and worth in the eyes of God. Uh, Genesis one twenty seven, Genesis 3.18 through 24, I think, teach that and assume that. When we get to the New Testament, Galatians is even more specific if there was any doubt, uh, 3.28, where the Apostle Paul, inspired of God, says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. There's a oneness to human humanity. Not just oneness between men and men, but a oneness with men and women. We're equal in dignity and worth in the eyes of God, and we should be equal in dignity, worth in the eyes of one another. This is how we understand the biblical teaching about the equal worth and dignity of women. Is there anything I missed so far, Matthew? There is not anything that you've missed, but I think just to reiterate the point that this is where we're at, but we also acknowledge that there are people who would call themselves Christians, who would, on some level, in practice, demonstrate by their actions that they don't live that out, even if they say that they hold to it. And our rebuke to that, or challenge to that, would be that that's a problem of their application, and they need to seek to bring their their life in line with that scriptural principle, not 
it's not a demonstration that somehow it's not true. Right. It's no no one is perfect. Right. And e- even feminists their i their their ideas are better than the than the way they live them out. If they to give them the benefit of the doubt that they do have some good ideas, which I don't know about, but <laughs> let's just assume for the sake of argument they, they have some good ideas. But they don't live up to their ideals. No one lives up to their ideals. We all fall, fall short. Um, and, of course, we believe that this is God's ideal that we're trying to promote here. And if we fall short of human ideals, we certainly fall short of God's ideal. That's not an excuse to continue. We we think there ought to be something done about it if people are committing crimes or living in sin, but those are how we deal with that in particular as a subject for another day. But just because Christians have failed to live according to what the Scriptures say doesn't mean the Scripture's not true. It's, it, it means that Christians are sinners, and we need to continually be sanctified by the grace of God and live and work hard by the grace of God to to put away those sins and, and bring an end to it. We don't want to be hypocrites. We want to live according to our ideals, but we fail because we're sinners. Um, but that doesn't undo the ideal. It doesn't mean that the ideal was wrong because we failed to live up to it. It means we need to do better by the grace of God. Good point, Matthew. Rebecca McLaughlin, I think, does a real good job in her book. In fact, this is in, in the book, Secular Creed, this is my favorite chapter. Um, she spends time talking about Jesus' treatment of women. And actually, the subtitle for this part of the chapter is Jesus' shocking relationships with women. Because in that culture, the things that Jesus was doing would have been looked at suspiciously. It, it was definitely a patriarchal society, a patriarchal culture and Jesus was breaking some taboos when he acted in the way he did so I'm going to quote from her book so she says we saw in chapter one that's chapter one of her book that Jesus longest recorded conversation with any individual was a Samaritan woman of ill repute you can find that in John chapter four this was definitely taboo he shouldn't have been talking to a woman according to the mores of the day he shouldn't have been talking to a woman who was sexually impure, and he shouldn't have been talking to a woman, period, considering who he was. And then she goes on to say, One time Jesus was dining at a Pharisee's house when a sinful woman gate crashed. She wept on Jesus' feet, wiped them with her hair, and kissed them. Uh, she was worshiping Christ, and uh, the Pharisee was appalled by that. Uh, but Christ welcomed her. She goes on to say, he welcomed women despised as sexual sinners. He also welcomed women deemed unclean. She concludes by saying, whether little girls or prostitutes, whether despised foreigners or women made unclean by menstrual blood, whether married or single, sick or disabled, Jesus made time for women and treated them with care and respect. In Luke's gospel, women are often compared with men. And where there is a contrast, the woman come out looking better. 
In all four Gospels, women witnessed Jesus' resurrection first, although the testimony of women wouldn't have been seen as convincing at the time. So you, you can see here that um, if, if you looked into the time period and understood the culture at that time, you would see clearly Jesus is doing something countercultural. And, and the woman at the well in John chapter 4 you see that in, in the Bible because the apostles return after being gone and said, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you talking to this woman? Um, the Pharisees, the same thing. The Pharisee rebukes Jesus for letting this woman wash uh, his feet and kiss his feet and, and worship him in that way um, because, you know, you, have you heard about her? <laughs> If you were a prophet, you wouldn't be letting a woman like this touch you. Her unholiness might rub off on you. But Jesus did these things constantly. And so we see him treating women with as valuable, as important, not as lesser citizens uh, than men. You see this in Jesus. You see the same idea. If you actually want to take the time, you go back to the Old Testament law, you look at the way... God approaches women, and you, over and over, scriptures replete with examples of the point Jeremy started this conversation with, that in God's eyes, men and women are both have equal value and worth, which is directly opposite to the way the culture at the time viewed them, where the culture in Greek and Roman culture would view women more as objects to be possessed as opposed to a human to be valued. Right, and this this is why, again, we refer to Tom Holland's book, Dominion, because she mentions a lot. Um, this this is the point of his book, is, and I'll have a quote, a more specific quote in a little bit. The point of his book is to say that these human rights and things that we hold dear do not come from atheists, enlightened, enlightenment thinking, rather they come from biblical Christianity. They don't come from the classical cultures of Rome and Greece. We don't, we don't get it from there. That's not how they treated women. That's not how they treated people who looked different than them. So where where did this idea come up? I mean, the point... The point that Tom Holland is actually making in his book is that we've absorbed these things. So saying women have rights is a no-brainer. It's not something people even argue. It's an assumption during our day. And, and to say that you should treat people of color, you shouldn't treat them poorly just because they're people of color, is, is an assumption today that hasn't always been true in history. And Holland is asking, why is that? And he look you know, he looks back in these ancient cultures and and he sees the opposite of what we in the West believe today, and he sees Christianity is where these ideas came from. And again, we're not saying that we've done this without fail, especially when it comes to people of color, people that look different than us, there has been mistreatment in the past. So we're not 
We're not saying that we have lived up to the ideal, but we're saying the ideal doesn't come from enlightenment rationalism or atheism or humanism. It, it comes from Christianity, these ideals of human rights. So, one more, one more thing, and then we'll get to that specific quote. What I'm trying to show is that the Bible, the Old and the New Testament, shows that men and women are of equal worth and dignity. Dignity. They're both. They both bear the image of God. I'm trying to show that Jesus treated women with dignity and worth, and saw them as valuable, and and they were important to him and to his ministry. Next, we need to look at the early church. We, we see this in the book of Acts. There's prominent women in the book of Acts. Uh, Lydia is the name that first comes to my mind. But there's others as well. There's Aquila and Priscilla, his wife. There's prominent women that Paul mentions. Uh, they're mentioned in other places as well, like especially the book of Acts. The early church was predominantly made up of women. And the cultures at the time that were patriarchal were critical of the church because it was nothing but a bunch of women, slaves, and children. And I think that's what the quote Tom Holland says. But listen to this. One second century Greek philosopher quipped that Christians want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid. Only slaves, women, and little children. See, I remember that one, Matthew. Way to go, Jeremy. <laughs> Likewise, in the third century, Christianity was mocked for attracting the dregs of the populace and credulous women with the inability natural to their sex. So the culture at the time... Saul, Saul did not see these women as equal in dignity and worth, but they were, you know, their, the weaknesses of their sex were made fun of. The church at that time then was criticized by outsiders for being made up of women and children. But you'll remember that whenever the Bible talks about people who are desperately needy, it mentions the widows and children. And the these people were attracted to Christianity, not because Christianity promoted patriarchy, but because Christianity promoted the dignity and worth of all human beings, including women and children. And so they flocked to the early church as a result, and then the outsiders critiqued it for that reason. So the quote from Tom Holland, he, here's what he says, that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth. I'm stopping the quote here, but what I'll add to that is we think of it as a self-evident truth today. It's a no-brainer. It's assumed. It's in the air we breathe. Nobody really argues against this. There's minority hate groups and things like that that say these stupid things. We're not denying their existence, but you're not going to generally find this. It's self-evident today. He goes on to say, a Roman would have laughed at it. To campaign against discrimination on the grounds of gender or sexuality, however, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing in a common assumption that everyone possessed an inherent worth. The origins of this principle lay not in the French Revolution, nor in the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment, 
but in the Bible. And remember, Tom Holland, not the guy who plays Spider-Man, this is the historian, Tom Holland is an atheist. He's not here doing this as an apologetic for Christianity, to make Christianity more palatable. I don't know what his motives are, and it's not... I'm not here to question those. My motive is to be an apologist for Christianity, and that's that's why we're dealing with these issues. But he, as an atheist, sees that these ideas about the dignity and worth of every human being don't just come out of thin air. They came from somewhere, and where he sees them starting is in in places where Christianity has had a great influence. The reality is you can look at the world today and see the the places where Christianity has had no or very little influence and just look at how they treat women and children and treat people who are different than them. And you see a stark contrast. There's a reason why the West, which has been very formed by Christianity, there's a reason why the West has these assumptions. And... I think the assumption, I think Tom Holland is proving that they come from Christianity, they come from the Bible, and not from these other ideas. Anything on that regard before we move on to the final thing? Because time's about up. Matthew. No, I don't, can't think of anything. All right. So now there is one issue we need to we need to clarify because um, everybody will say, "Yeah, Jeremy and Matthew must be egalitarians." We're <laughs> we're not affirming that. While we do hold that women are created with equal dignity and worth, and they equally bear the image of God, we do believe, according to the Bible, that men and women have different roles, especially in the home and in the church. What we're saying is they're not inferior as human beings. We do not believe that there's a hierarchy of beings, that men are Men are somehow superior, women are inferior, according to who they are as human beings. Human beings are all equal. But what we're saying is there, there are different roles for men and women. Um, Ephesians 5 mentions this in verse 22. Of course, verse that egalitarians and feminists don't like. <laughs> Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, and then... Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There are other indications in the Bible that men are to be head of the home, men are to be the leaders in the church. Again, this we're not arguing this based on some inferiority, some ontological inferiority of women. We're saying this because God in his wisdom has given men and women different roles, and especially in the church and in the home. And to undermine those things doesn't only undermine the law of God, but it also brings harm to our families, to our churches, to our societies, to our cultures. One of the issues with feminism, that especially the third wave feminist, is that they're trying. They seem to be trying to take away all distinctions between men and women, and they're flattening everything so everything's the same. We believe that God likes diversity, <laughs> so God likes men to be men and women to be women. And being a man is a good, positive thing, and being a woman is a good, positive thing. Yes, there are excesses. We're not, 
Again, <laughs> we know people haven't lived up to the ideal, and you can point out a million and one ways in which this has been turned into evil. We, we know, and it grieves us that those things happen. We live in a sin-filled world, and we work as hard as we can to sanctify ourselves and, and to uh, encourage holiness in our churches so that these excesses, these these sins and abusive behaviors don't aren't perpetuated, but ultimately we're sinners and we don't live up to our ideal. But again, that doesn't get rid of the ideal. Just because we fail doesn't mean the ideal, that the standard is somehow wrong. And so we, we're trying, by God's grace, to live according to the standard. God has created something beautiful in creating man, men and women different and for different roles. It, it's not making men superior. It's not making women inferior. It's, they complement one another, and it, this is for the glory of God, for the good of humanity, that God has done this. It's a positive thing that we ought to celebrate. Masculinity and femininity are good gifts of God that we ought to celebrate, and we shouldn't try to flatten these things and make everyone exactly the same. Men are, can do things women can't. Men, men, There are things women can do that men cannot do. But God made us for one another to complement each other so that together we would be better off than we are individually. Any Anything that I missed there? No, I think that's a good introductory summary of complementarianism, which is where we're at. And I think, again... The, the reiteration is the flaws that are seen and then drawn attention drawn to are not flaws of structure, not flaws in the way that God designed complementarianism, but instead they're flaws in the execution and, ha- and because we are sinners, we therefore don't live up to the ideal. But functionally the ideal is proper and good and that's what we need to strive towards god and i can't remember the specific verse but we're we're dependent on one another correct the human race wouldn't continue to exist if there weren't men and women right and you can't have men without women giving birth to men so we're, the whole third wave feminism that seems to be promoting the idea that women are women are actually superior to men, and that men ought to be more feminine is absolutely ridiculous. It's we need each other. We complement one another perfectly. If we abstract it and get rid of the sin, then we complement each other perfectly. We don't live in an abstract world. We live in a real world where there's real sinners and. We, we don't live according to our ideals. We shouldn't give up the beautiful thing that God has created because foolish men and women haven't lived up, foolish and sinful men and women haven't lived up to the ideal. Sorry, Matthew, I didn't mean to interrupt no, you. No, you're fine. You that's... probably had something profound to say and I ruined it. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> I, I think that is the, the one piece we have to keep in mind. I think the other piece we have to keep in mind is that one of the other things that feminist, especially third wave, I will wholeheartedly agree that for the most part, first wave feminism was a good thing mm-hmm. because the idea that women giving women the right to vote and own land and that okay. But one of the things I would argue that third wave feminism does is that third wave feminism is 
in an effort to, like Jeremy said, level everything out, on some level, they turn women into property and victims. Yeah. Because, th- because when you reduce a woman to simply a function that she performs and then say that's the defining characteristic, which is one of the, what Rebecca McLaughlin talks about in the chapter that we didn't get into, but when that's the fundamental underpinning of what makes a woman a woman, and so then you get into the whole abortion debate, you've, been, you've reduced her into a function of what God has made her to be. And I think that's where the struggle comes. And again, as in, instead of understanding the way God designed men and women to function and behave, we rather fall into traps, whether that's the trap on the women side, there's a trap on the male side where one of the fundamental problems in feminism is it reduces the responsibility of men. It eliminates responsibility of men because if we're all equal, then women don't need men at all. And that's another whole topic for another day. Right. But ultimately, what we have to strive for is that this idea back to Genesis 127. That men and women were created in the image of God, and they, for they both have, ultimately, they have worth and value intrinsically in and of themselves because they're made in God's image. And so, we... Right. Not because of their function. Correct. It's not a function question, so ultimately, it's a question of being. It's an essence question. In, their, in our essence, we have purpose. We have value. We have worth. And so... What we would close today with is this simple idea. We should strive to live up to that essence and worth so that we do all that we can to value all women and all men because of their intrinsic value found in their creation in God's image. We thank you for listening to this episode of Ordinary Fellowship, a podcast ministry of Two Rivers Community Church. For more information about Two Rivers, you can find it on our website at www.tworiverscc.org. We look forward to your questions, your comments, and even that dreaded hate mail at ordinaryfellowship at gmail.com. Please follow us on Facebook at Ordinary Fellowship and like, subscribe, and rate this podcast on whatever service you listen to us on. But for now, we want to thank you once again for listening to this episode of Ordinary Fellowship, where we're striving to have spiritual conversations for practical Christians. Living.